Hi, this is Steven. I once trained and worked as an actor in Hollywood. Today, I host Hollywood and Beyond podcast here in my hometown of Cincinnati, where I strive to bring you meaningful interviews. I hope you will enjoy my podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Hi, this is Carrie Genzel, actor, producer, writer, and creator of stateofslay.com. Slay, in this case, being an acronym for self-love, appreciate you. State of Slay is a blog that I created documenting my journey from the darkness of depression to living in the light today and focusing on the positive. It is a safe place to encourage one another and walk together as we find empowerment and self-love. I hope you'll join me on my blog, stateofslay.com, where we walk and slay together. Slay on. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham, delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hello, friends and listeners. This is the creator, producer, and the host of Hollywood and Beyond podcast, Stephen Brittingham. Welcome and thank you for listening. You can contact me directly anytime at hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. Say hi, send me some feedback, comments, or share your own artistic projects with me. Whatever the reason, I'd love to hear from you. My extra special guest today, Marianne Alda. This talented and remarkable lady not only left her mark on ABC soap opera Edge of Night as Dee Dee Bannister, she has also left her mark on many other shows, such as The Royal Family with Red Fox. And this also includes film projects as well. She also paved the way for others in the industry. And by others, I am referring specifically to women of color. No wonder I am so honored to have her visit with me today. Marianne Alda, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Well, thank you, Steve. That was quite a build-up. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> well, you already have, and you are most welcome. I'm just so uh, happy to be speaking with you today. So thank you for joining me. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. I think this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And that makes two of us. And where (laughs) are you actually joining me from today? Well, today I am joining you from uh, Chicago, Illinois, which is my hometown. And I am hunkered down here with my sister, kind of um, uh, sheltering in for the duration of the whatever this is we're in right now for the pandemic, for the, for the quarantine, for the uh, lockdown, whatever it is that we're in right now, this is where I am. And I can't think of a better place to be, actually, except maybe L.A., because it's warmer out there, and it's kind of <laughs> rain here today. So, so A little more sunshine just, out there. A little more sunshine, but just spiritually and emotionally, um, this is a good place for me to be right now. In your hometown of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm in my hometown of Cincinnati, and it's also a very rainy day here. So we're kind of in the same uh, plateau, so to speak. We're probably in the same weather vortex, <laughs> that Midwestern kind of funky. It's not quite winter, not quite spring, not quite summer. You know, the kind of transitional where it's 30 degrees one day and the next day it's 80 degrees. Yes, we've been having that as well. One day it's uh, <laughs> 70, the next day it's uh, 44 degrees. Uh, yep. you know, so that's how spring is here in Cincinnati, and sounds like you can relate to that as well. Well, it's so nice to have you here. I hope your family is all safe and well during this challenging time, and uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with you so much. I, I've just learned so much about you. And uh, just uh, you have accomplished many impressive uh, things throughout your career. And and I just want to tip my hat to you in advance. Well, you mentioned you're from Chicago. So there goes that question. So how Mm -hmm. about I ask you, what was it like growing up in Chicago? Uh, Well, growing up in Chicago, I, you know, I'm, I'm, old. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a senior actor. I'm uh, 70. I, I have a birthday next, well, actually in two days, May 7th, I'll be 72. So well, I happy birthday in, in advance. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is like a little pre-birthday treat, actually. Um, so growing up in Chicago in the 1950s, it was very, well, actually, I grew up in the suburbs of Phoenix, Illinois. And it was very kind of a, you know, provincial, very polite, civilized. We went to Catholic school. And and even though there was still a certain amount of, um, I would say, segregation, you know, in the South. I mean, this is really the civil rights movement. I think there was a certain politeness in society. We were kind of sheltered, I think, growing up. Both my parents were, I would say, activists, and they took uh, a lot of pride in the fact that neither one of them had graduated from high school, actually, but they insisted that my sister and I graduate from college, which we did. So things were, um, how can I say it? I'd say it was a great place to grow up, and it was a it was an exciting time, but it was also a kinder, gentler time, I think, than we're experiencing right now. I think what's happening right now with uh, with the 
COVID-19. I think that the planet is kind of rebooting itself and maybe getting back to a time where we have more empathy and compassion and kindness for one another because we have to depend on one another for our own survival. So I think there, with a few minor eruptions of people saying, no, no, I don't want to wear my mask. No, we have to wear our masks and, and, and keep our distance from each other to protect each other. You know, I don't wear my mask to protect myself. I wear my mask in the event that I have, uh, uh, I'm asymptomatic and I don't want to infect anyone else. And I think once we recognize our interdependency upon one another, we'll get back to back to a, a better place, I think. Well, well said, Marianne. That was uh, beautiful, too. Very insightful. I completely agree with you. Uh, I hope we all change from this. <laughs> well, I've been on this planet for, uh, for a long time, and so I kind of feel like I've experienced a lot of different eras in history, you know, when I look back on it and I can be reflective of it. So I can, you know, I'm sounding like, oh, back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) So like like our parents, oh, back in the good old days. Well, there was something good about it. And let's take the good and move that forward and just eliminate the bad. And I hope we're doing that right now. And, you know, I was listening to you and I was thinking how the environment is something that's so important to me. It's something that I think about a lot. If there's anything that I can do to make a difference, I've been trying to make extra efforts. I do a lot of recycling and, and okay. things like that. And, and when I was listening to your wonderful description, that's what I was thinking about. And, and, and I agree with you. I certainly hope we can all just take care of this earth together and each other, e- even more than before. Very important. And thank you for sharing that. Now, I'm very curious. Obviously, one day you would become this talented actress, no doubt about that. But my question is, was there certain television shows or films or actors that maybe had an influence on you before you started your own acting journey as you were growing up? Well, the funny thing is that when I was a little girl, uh, my mother used to watch Edge of Night, and it would come on, I can't remember if it was before or after the Mickey Mouse Club, I, and so I would watch Edge of Night, and I would watch the Mickey Mouse Club, and Annette Spunicello was one of the, you know, the most beloved musketeers, and she had dark curly hair and she had tan skin. She was a little darker than the other musketeers. And I looked at her and I thought, there's somebody on television who looks like me. Because keep in mind, back in the 50s, there weren't that many people of color on TV. And so I learned all the little uh, songs uh, from the Mickey Mouse Club. Today is Tuesday. You know what I mean? We're going to have a special guest. And actually, today is Tuesday. So perfect. Um, So I learned all the little songs. And I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be an actress on TV. And I do a lot of motivational speaking, especially to young people. And I tell them that it's important to have a really big dream because if you aim for the stars and you don't quite make it, 
getting to the moon is still pretty good. And I said, I, I wanted to be on the Mickey Mouse Club. That was my big dream. But I got to be on the edge of night, which used to come on right after that. And so I say, you know, if you aim for the stars and you have to settle for second best, it's not bad. So edge of night was my second best. It wasn't on the Mickey Mouse Club, but it's funny how the universe kind of works that way to conspire, to bring you uh, at least in close proximity to what you want when you aim for it, when you reach for it. That is amazing. When you believe. Yes. Yeah. And the funny thing too is um, I have a, uh, my major, I have a concentration in both theater and journalism. I graduated from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And my, one of my first jobs was as a publicist at ABC TV in New York because no one in my family had, uh, was in show business. No one was an actor. And so my parents wanted me to be practical. So I did the fallback career. I did publicity and my beat was daytime TV. So I did all my children and one life to live. Those are the shows that I covered. So I was on those sets all the time. And I find it interesting that seven years later, I was back at ABC as one of the stars of their show. And I remember the woman's name was Audrey Sachs because she was a publicist when I was at ABC as a publicist. And when I came back seven years later to be on edge of night, she had my old beat. And she said to me, well, you know, Marianne, you're good at this. Do you want to write your own bio? This is when I went under contract. And I said, no, no, Audrey. I, <laughs> I said, I'll let you do it, but I do know how to interview myself. So I can, I know questions to ask me. We kind of laughed. And so she did the bio and then she said, she read it and she said, you know what? You've really done something with your life. And I went, wow, that was a very important lesson. And I want all the, you know, your listeners to experience what I experienced when she told me that. I realized that if she felt that way, that I had done something with my life and she was still at a place where she felt that she hadn't really done anything with hers, I think that's the biggest lesson for us all. Go for your dreams. It's easier to live with disappointment than it is with regret. I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's a very important statement there. It really is. Yeah, because disappointment, you know, if you you can go for something and aim for it, and maybe you don't quite get what it is that you want, but you can live with the fact that you tried. And just by putting in the effort, you don't know what's going to show up. That, that you know, you might be heading in one direction, but the universe will turn you in another direction. And you go, hey, this is pretty good. But if you don't aim for something and go in any direction, if you never get off that spot, you'll never, ever know, and you'll never get anywhere. This is true. And, Marianne, another way to uh, look at the, that approach is that, look, if it doesn't go very well the first or even second time, you can learn from it and try yet again. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the probably the my motto of my <laughs> career, of my life. You just put it that there's a thing, if you... If you're walking through hell, 
Don't stop. Just keep walking. Just just keep walking till you get through just it. Just keep walking. Get through it. Absolutely. Gee, this is ending up being a really deep conversation for us. It sure <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> Like we, we're go, we're going to church here, Steve. Okay, <laughs> we're going to emotional church. Absolutely. There you go. Well, I couldn't ask for a better lady to to do that with. I'm curious now. Well, amen and hallelujah. Okay, I hear you. Thank you. So, how did the transition uh, from publicist to you know actually pursuing acting? I, I'm wondering at, while you were visiting the sets how that may have like uh, started to plant seeds in you? I mean, did you find maybe, wow, this looks like uh, so much fun or something I would like to try as well? Or how did that all happen for you? Well, like I said, it was my childhood dream to be an actor. And so I took uh, dance classes and theater classes Mm. at Roosevelt University. uh, They had a children's theater program on Saturday. So I did that when I was, a kid. And then I did plays and things in high school. And in college, I toured with the Southern Illinois University Touring Theater. But I I wasn't sure how I could really make a living at it because it seemed a little fanciful to want to be an actor, mm-hmm. uh, especially a, a person of color. It's like, how was I going to make a living at it? But when I moved to New York and like I said, I was uh, working at ABC and I was uh, married at the time. And when I was working at ABC, I got pregnant. So a lot of times I was going over to the set with a huge belly. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, and when I went on maternity leave, I auditioned for a children's theater company. And my son was about three months old at the time. And I got the job. And it was for a summer program for 75 bucks a week and all you could beg in the street for the Parks Department of the City of New York. It was called Off Center's Theater Company. And I thought that was a sign. I got my very first audition as an actor. It was, it paid, it was a paying gig. And, um, I went on a three-month maternity leave, and I just never came back until I came back uh, seven years later to uh, be one of the stars of Edge of Night. And even that, I didn't start. It didn't start out as a as a contract role. It was supposed to be a recurring story arc to create a uh, a love triangle between Calvin and his wife Star. And I had been on the show, I think maybe about six, maybe about five or six months. And Nick Nicholson, who was the executive producer, said, um, hey, kid, we kind of like you over here. How do you feel about um, hanging in for a while? And I thought, well, gee, that was great. And then I, I signed a contract. And I remember my first Christmas party meeting Henry Slusser, who was the head writer of the show. And he came up to me and he had this big twinkle in his eye and he said, oh, I've got plans for Didi. And I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, I'm going to make you suffer because you suffer so well. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, the scenes that I've been viewing uh, recently uh, from uh, The Edge Mm -hmm. of Night involving your character in particular, you really stand out in the scenes. 
Um, you know, you really, uh, it, I mean, my first impression is that your character is very strong-willed and determined, and uh, she's not going to just take things lying down so easily. That's the impression I'm getting so far when I view your scenes. I would say pretty much that's Dee Dee, and I would pretty much say that's also Marianne. <laughs> so I, I infuse a lot of myself in her. Hmm. And, um, and keep in mind, that was, I came on the show in 1981. And up until that time, I was a member of SAG-AFTRA, and I was doing a lot of commercials before that. That's pretty much how I made my living, um, doing a lot of television commercials. And there, the the actors of color sort of formed a coalition in in AFTRA because we were trying to um, get more people of color on TV. And at the time, the the prevailing thought was, well, there are a lot of good theater trained black actors, but that wouldn't necessarily translate to television. If you can imagine that that thought process back in the late seventies, early eighties, and in fact, they had sort of an affirmative action lottery where they paired uh, ten couples up with, uh, or maybe it was eleven, because I think there were eleven soap operas in New York at the time, uh, with a director from each one of the shows, and then they put them on a reel and passed them around to the casting directors, which, you know, not everybody who's a union member is. Is, is an actor, you know what I mean? They they haven't necessarily trained, but they have a union card. So it was kind of hit or miss in terms of what they got, but it did open some doors. And as one of the early women of color, I would say the, the people I look up to like Ellen Holly, Ellen Holly made and Al Freeman Jr. made me a believer um, when they were on um, One Life to Live. And then, of course, there was uh, Lisa Dickerson and John Donnell, who were Frank and Nancy Grant on All My Children, and then um, Debbie Morgan, um, who was on All My Children. So there weren't a lot of us on TV back at that time, and, and Bianca Ferguson, who was on um, General Hospital at the time. So I felt a certain responsibility in the position that I had because I was creating an image and I knew I wanted to be, wanted it to be a positive one. And I remember one day I was coming from church uh, at the Lincoln Center on the Upper West Side of New York and I was having breakfast at a little coffee shop. And I remember this, this little old lady came up to me, uh, um, uh, an older black woman. And she just came by my table and she put, she rested her hand on my hand and she said, Oh baby, it is so good to see you on that show. It is so good. And and I'm getting a little emotional when I think about it because that I realized the, the importance of the role that I was playing when you're out there and you're one of the first, you have to set a certain standard because a lot of people are, believing in you and wanting to see you uh wanting to see you succeed because if you fail that's going to close some doors so you kind of have to succeed to keep the doors open for other people at least that's how i felt at the time i felt a lot of responsibility at the time and and um 
I know it's maybe it's a little hard to relate to because this is like 30, 40 years later, but at the time it was, uh, it was a really pivotal character to be on TV. And I, I'm proud that I got a chance to play her and uh, I wanted to represent her well because I knew I was representative of a lot of other women. I, I have this fantasy. I like to think that uh, there was another young black girl growing up on the south side of Chicago when she would come home from school and see Dee Dee on TV and she thought, oh, I can be a lawyer. And that was Michelle Obama. <laughs> That's my fantasy. I'd like to think that I inspired Michelle, little Michelle Robinson, to become a lawyer. Um, I'd like to meet her someday and ask her that. Michelle, did you ever, uh, you know, so anyway, we'll see. Maybe that will happen someday. I certainly hope so. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if her answer is, Hell yes, you you had an impact on me, if you don't mind me saying. So you were you were certainly <laughs> impacting people. That is a wonderful thing. It's something I admire so much about you. Um, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around why, you know, you know, you know what I'm trying to say is when I think back, you know, I grew up in the '80s, so to speak, and you know, it's just amazing that we even have to have discussions like this that we aren't just all equal together, but you were making a difference. And, and I really admire that. I'm wondering though, at times, did you uh, feel um, any anxiety just kind of having that weight on your shoulders as time went on a little bit? Um, how was that for you in that respect? Uh, I didn't feel any anxiety. Like I said, my, my parents were, raised my sister and me to be to be very proud and upstanding citizens of this country. And we were raised that that to be to believe that like my, my father said to me, you know, you know, because you're a little colored girl, you're gonna have to work ten times as hard as those other folks. But don't let anybody else's no stop your yes. So because my parents had both grown up, my dad was from uh Tennessee and my mother was from Mississippi. So they grew up in the Jim Crow South. So they, which is why they moved to the North so they could have a better life and then of course create a better life for their children. So there is, uh, was a certain dignity that they instilled in my sister and me about how we should carry ourselves and how we should believe ourselves to be in the world that in fact we are, uh, equal to anyone, you know, to not feel lesser than, not necessarily to feel greater than, but to believe that who you were was based on how you treated other people and your own personal accomplishments. Well, that was so beautifully and well said. Thank you, Marianne. And just, uh, I I got, um, uh, you know, chills listening to you because, it just reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr., that that's the exact approach he took, was just to judge me who, as who I am as a man and, and not for other factors. And uh, you just... Well, uh, keep in mind, I grew up in the 50s. So, I mean, Martin Luther King was one of my idols. I remember, you know, when he was, when he was shot and killed, I was in college at the time. Um, I was in college during the era of Kent State, so that you know, and Bobby Kennedy was mm-hmm. assassinated, and and JFK was assassinated. 
those were really tumultuous times and we managed to get through it. And that is just a reminder that even though we're going through tumultuous times right now, we will get through this too. I absolutely agree with you. And thinking about that day, Marianne, would you mind just sharing like how you felt? Uh, no doubt shock, but I mean, how were you really feeling? Were you numb? Were you in disbelief when you heard what had happened to Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, when you think back, how were you feeling at that moment? Well, uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. Sure. When JFK was assassinated, when I when he was when I was in high school, and I remember I was in social studies class, Mr. Martin's social John Martin, Mr. Martin's social social studies class, and I remember it was maybe fifth period, and the announcement was made, and we were all released and sent home from school and everyone was kind of in a daze. You say, you know, class is dismissed. And I remember actually watching the funeral services on television at the time. It's a black and white TV. And I remember that in our house, you know, remember there's always that picture of, of John F. Kennedy Jr. as a little boy saluting the casket. Mm -hmm. And this is going to sound weird, but in my family, when the casket came up, it was like my dad wasn't home at the time, but my mother and my sister and I kind of all stood up and put our hearts, our hands over our hearts. Oh, wow. I remember that we were just deeply, deeply affected by that. And so when I went away to college, it was the time there was a lot of, there was a lot of, you know, protests and, and, and a, a lot of, you know, there's a, that was the time of the Black Panthers and the Weathermen and a, there was a lot of protesting that was going on just all across the country. And when Martin Luther King was shot, I remember I was in college and the school went on lockdown. Um, because there were protests and there was Kent State and there's just a lot of stuff that was going on at the time. And I remember that we were put on lockdown and the college was under martial law. And I can remember walking home from the library to the dorm and looking up and on the rooftop, uh, it was only like three stories, but on the roof of one of the buildings was a National Guardsman. And then he had a rifle in his hand and he's like, Looking at looking down at me, and I'm thinking, oh, let me get my butt home <laughs> back to the dorm <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, it was, it was, but it wasn't a scary time. I think it was an exciting time because I believe that everybody felt that we were fighting for something important, mm -hmm. um, that we wanted to change the world, and make it a better place. And now I, I, I kind of think that we lost some of those values because making it a better place doesn't mean that we have to have more stuff. I think we kind of got caught up in more of a, more of a, uh, a society that's 
has to do with things and a little bit more superficial, you know, like with, you know, keeping up with this and how many, you know, who needs $200 sneakers or a, a $300 purse? Why is a purse, a $40 purse, $300 because it's got some designer's initials on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, because of what's happening now, not only with the, with the virus, but with the economy, we've all kind of been flattened down to the point where we have to reevaluate what is most important. You know, as long as you have food to eat and a roof over your head, and a lot of people are really having some problems with that now. There's a lot of anxiety. And again, it's going back to, you know, I said at the beginning, we have to pull together or we will all pull apart. We have to take care of one another. So I think now that we're all so affected by it, like I personally know four people who have, um, who, had the COVID-19 and two of those people died. So I am personally affected by that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so of course I'm going to be ultra and and I'm, you know, I'm 72. I'm a cancer survivor. I have high blood pressure and asthma. So it's very, I'm in a high risk group. So of course I'm going to be, extremely, extremely careful about, you know, uh, making sure that I wash my hands and, and when I come back from the grocery stores, I mean, I keep a a Lysol in my, in the car, Mm -hmm. spray the bags before I put them in the car, put the bags on the floor, take everything out and then wipe everything down, every can, every package with, with, um, alcohol, wash off all the fruits and vegetables before I put them in the freezer. I mean, the refrigerator. These are just things that you have to do now. Um, hopefully, you won't have to do it for too long. Um, but if it's going to be a long haul, if it's going to be a couple years, then we're just going to have to do it. We're just going to have to do what we need to do. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and feelings and opinions, Mariana. I was really moved and touched by all that you had to say. I'm so sorry for your friends, the loss of your friends. I'm not sure that I think of you as an old person, just so you know. Uh, oh, well, I don't either. <laughs> well, good, good. Because you are still a young lady in my mind. <laughs> um, it's just number. Well, well, okay. So this is my, this is my, as I was a um, kind of a, an activist or an advocate for, uh, for women of color back in the, you know, in the sixties and seventies, I am now advocating for older women of every color, because I think we, my, my shtick now is to change the paradigm on women and aging. Um, because I've become an, an anti-aging, anti-ageism activist. Yes, you sure have. I, I know I discovered that. It was very unexpected. And yeah, well, again, because um, I guess being an uh, being an advocate or an activist is just in me. And if I find something that I think is wrong, then I'm going to stand up for trying to make it right. Um, uh, I just think that's that we all have a responsibility to when we see things that that we feel are need to be changed, 
you know, they say if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So I'm, I, I have never been a bystander. I'm always going to be right in the middle of things. So, um, I, uh, I did a Ted talk. My Ted talk is ageism is a bully stand up to it. And so, um, and so I want your listeners to, you know, check out my TED, my TEDx talk. Um, if you go to ages, it is a bully TEDx.com or just Google me. My, my TED talk will, will, uh, come up. It's very and entertaining I, too. <laughs> well, so well, thank you. Well, I, you know, the thing about it is, as I say in the talk, you know, whether it's ageism or racism or sexism, any word that ends in ism, the ISM stands for I subscribe mentally, but we can cancel those subscriptions. You know, all of us are, are going to be the odd man out or we're all going to be discriminated against by someone or something, you know, either you're going to be the shortest person or you're going to be the tallest person or, you know, for this, that, and the other thing. And the thing about it is that we have to stand up for who we are and stand up for the others who are like us, you know, and it doesn't mean that you have to be combative. That just means to be that you have to comport yourself in a way and, and stand up for yourself and not to cower. It's not always a comfortable situation to be in, but that's the only way that we can make change. And, you know, and like I said, I, as an older person, I'm not just standing up for myself. I'm also standing up for other older people, especially women, um, because a little sidebar here, when I was in my fifties and the casting director stopped calling, I became a hypnotherapist and I realized that the subconscious beliefs that we carry in our minds, create all kinds of physical ailments and depression so that it's important to see positive images of women on screen so that women feel good about themselves because it actually affects uh, our longevity. People who have a positive, um, uh, a positive sense of getting older live on average seven and a half years longer than people who have a negative concept wow. of aging. And That's I always say right that there. The, there's no kidding. <laughs> and the thing about it is that it is funny because when I was younger, I don't remember being, being, um, uh, you know, an anti older people, you know, I always wanted to grow up and be an older person. It probably it always looked so cool, you know? And, um, and I, I've always had a lot of friends of, you know, I have friends who are in their eighties. I have a friend who just turned a hundred and nice. Oh my God. And she's a pissed off. <laughs> and I have a lot of young, a lot of young friends who mm -hmm. are in their thirties. I have a long, lot of young millennial friends that, you know, I mentor them on some things and, you know, they teach me some things about, um, social media and technology. And we're just equal in our friendships. We're just, just of a different age, but it doesn't seem to matter, but we each have something to bring to the table that's different because of our age and our experiences. And, um, so yeah, so 
in terms of older women, um, I think we need to see more positive images of women so that women can feel better about themselves. So again, here I go, onward Christian soldiers, we'll marry in, marching to the beat of a different drummer. There you, you go. Know, I want to set the tone for that. <laughs> women you you got to well. be you. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Marianne, I would like to add this thought uh, before I get back to the edge of night, because I had an interesting question for you. It, you know, when I think of uh, John Kennedy and his brother Robert and Martin Luther King Jr., I think about men that were able to move people by words, and I'm not talking about empty promises and just say what you want us to hear, but... but uh, quotes and statements that that move you and stir you and i just want to say thank you for sharing all that you did with me i really appreciate it well you're more than welcome thank you for having me be a guest on your show um you know because it's uh, it's if a tree falls in the middle of the woods and there's no one to hear it does it make a sound no so you're giving a platform to to make a sound and and maybe persuade some people to be more reflective during this time that we are that we're all kind of um, housebound and and maybe that will give them something to reflect on that's more positive and maybe a direction that they want their lives to go into when the you know when the lid comes off when the doors are open again hopefully well thank you I really appreciate that and I sure hope so. And I was thinking back, you described your earlier moments on uh, the edge of night, but I'm just wondering, was there any interesting situation or story to the actual audition itself? Anything in particular that stands out in your mind? Uh, well, yeah. I can't oh, remember. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it, well, first of all, when, um, like I said, I was doing a lot of commercials at the time. And at the time, back in the 70s, people were kind of tended to be put into categories. If you did theater, you didn't necessarily do commercials. You know, they're commercial actors, and those are usually the, the models and spokespeople type. And then there were people who did theater. And I was, and I, you know, I crossed over. I figured that, that commercials were a great way to make a living. They mm-hmm. would finance my theater career, which wasn't, you know, I was doing a lot of off-Broadway and way off-Broadway at the time, um, which didn't pay. And it also allowed me the opportunity to, um, you know, to be at home with with my my son um, because I didn't have a regular nine to five. You know, you do a commercial and you can make enough money, at least at that that time, you can make enough money off of one commercial that could, you know, last you for a year. Wow. But, um, so anyway, I, I, did, was doing a lot of commercials at the time, and there was a, a book called Ross Reports, and it gave a listing of all of the casting directors at the time. And I would get the book every month, and if there was a change, if there was a new casting director and new agents, I would make sure that I send off a picture and resume in an envelope to make sure that I was always in their file. Well, as luck would have it, Whitney Burnett was a new casting director at Edge of Night, and she called me directly to come in to audition for the show. And I was not submitted by, at the time I was freelancing with about three different agents, none of whom submitted me for this role. Um, 
because I don't know, maybe they didn't think I could act. I have no idea. Maybe they thought, oh, she's good for commercials, but can she really emote um, other than, you know, selling mm-hmm. tidy bowl or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so anyway, I went to the first audition and then I came to the second audition and then I went to the third audition and read for Nick Nicholson and I think Jackie Haber was there too and, and Whitney. And then it was down to, they must have read maybe about 200 maybe actors in the city, most of whom were, I mean, there were women who were doing Broadway, all kinds of big names. And I was just this little, you know, kid who did way off Broadway and did commercials. But the commercial I, <laughs> I was the commercial. Well, I remember getting into a, into a, a cab one day and the cab driver turned around and said, I know you, you're greasy dirt. Because I had a concentrated all commercial on that was running like crazy at oh. the time. And my big line was, oh, greasy dirt is a nightmare. And this man literally said, you're greasy dirt, aren't you? <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, um, so there were, there were four, it was down to four of us to screen test. And we screen tested at the Edge of Night studio. It was after they had, they had shot during the day. They had, they had, you know, wrapped the whole episode for the day. So the crew was sticking around to shoot the um, screen test. And there were four of us. And um, John Sedwick called us all out to the set and introduced us to Irving. He said the blocking and everything like that and told us what was going to happen. And he said, one by one, you'll each have a chance to have a run through and then we'll shoot it. So I thought, okay, that's great. And it was an 11-page scene. I remember that. It was a long scene. So one by one, they went in. And then I was number four. By this time, it's about 8 o'clock at night. It's really late. These people have been at the studio since, you know, 6 o'clock that morning. I walk out, and the crew was looking like, oh, God, can we hurry up and finish this? And John said to me, you know, it's getting late. So rather than do a dress rehearsal, why don't we just shoot your dress? And if you, you know, if you get a chance, you know, if you mess up, don't worry about it. You'll get a chance to do it again. But let's just take a chance. And I thought to myself, oh, boy, there will be no second chances. I'm just, <laughs> I have to nail it this one time. This is my only time. So I thought, oh, well, sure. Okay. So I make an entrance and I walk in and it's a scene between Irving and me and um, Chris. Oh God! What was his name? Chris, 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 Chris. It was the, the, the two detectives in the in the in the squad oh, room. Okay. And I walk in, and all of a sudden, I hear this oboe music. Now, I did not realize at the time, but to be cost effective, they would lay in the music tracks. While you were doing the scene, they didn't do it in post production like most people do. Are you do. serious? They would lay the music tracks down. I, I have never, I've never heard that before. You're hearing it. <laughs> wow, that is amazing <laughs> so, to me. <laughs> so I walk in, and it's supposed to be this combative scene between Calvin and Dee Dee, and she walks in, and she's because she's she's really upset because. She wants a fair shot for her. She was a criminal defense attorney, and she wanted a fair shot for her young client. And 
you know, Calvin is like, well, who are you? And, you know, he's a criminal. What do you want from me? She's just, oh, you know, uprighteous and, you know, wanting to defend her, her client. And then I hear this sexy oboe music. And the, my brain goes, okay. So this is more than just it. This is more than just a confrontational thing. This is a man-woman sexy thing. <laughs> I internalize that. And suddenly it changed the subtext of the whole scene. And I just sort of relaxed with the music. So there's a part of me as I'm looking at him, I'm going like, that's right. And then my brain is going, well, he's actually kind of cute, but that's okay. No, he's not right. It's like, but he is kind of cute. And so I kind of, (laughs) I think that that subtext carried through the scene, you know, it made it kind of interesting because, you know, they say it's, it's not what's on the, in the lines. It's what happens in the white space in between. And, um, and I think that's what got me the job. Wow. Really? You know, I think there was a certain chemistry that sort of happened between Irving and me mm-hmm. and working with Irving. Alan Lee was just delightful. We, he I was, was going to ask you so about what it was like to work with this gentleman who, you know, sadly left us very at a very young age. But what was it like working with him? Oh, he was he was wonderful. He was wonderful. And Irving, Irving was a party boy. He liked to party. <laughs> and. Sometimes he would come in and uh, he'd, you know, been out the night before and he would say, okay, he just has to, he has to, I have to get through this now. Very early, just got to get through. So I would say, okay. Mm. And he would just look at his script and sometimes I think the intensity of the scenes was such that he, like, maybe knew his lines. And we knew what the scene was about, but sometimes we would just be so intent with each other, like, okay, we're going to get through this. And he said, he said, I think, he said, he, I remember him saying to me, he said, I think sometimes you send me, you put my lines into my brain. He said, there's a mind meld. He said, and I know I always feel safe with you. Oh. And again, I think that's what trying to create some of the magic. Yes. And we just had it this time. He was a delightful person. He was a wonderful human being. And I would say that the whole, it was a fun set. It was a good group of people. Um, It was, we we shot the show in sequence. So it was from top to bottom. So it's not like some of the shows are shot now. Like I I worked on Sunset Beach for a while and you would shoot, we would shoot all of the shows, you know, in one set. So a lot of times you would never see the other, if you didn't have a storyline with those actors, you wouldn't necessarily see them. But on Edge, it was a half-hour show. We shot it from top to bottom. So we were all there all day with each other all the time. So it was a very playful and fun set. It was like um, it was a, like a little uh, family. Like a family, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you sharing some of your memories of your time on that show. And you were there during the final years of the show. Is that correct? Yep, I was in the. I went down with the ship. <laughs> you went down with the ship, and what is that like to 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 not only leave the show, but knowing that the show actually ended uh, when you left? I, th- I think it was it was sad. It was sad, sad and that's yes. for the loss of the you know our jobs for the actors and the, the dissolution of our family, but 
there was so much history on that show. It was a loss to the fans too. You know, like like I said, back in, in those days, there were at one time 11 soap operas on daytime television. And now it's becoming kind of like, you know, it's part of television history now because there's now there's just four. There's Bold and the Beautiful, um, uh, Young and the Restless, Young and the Restless, Days of Our Lives in General Hospital. There's just those four. Yes. Just four standing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, it used to be a whole lot more. Uh, yeah. Well, now that, uh, you know, there's not even any game shows. I mean, daytime television now is, a lot. well, television itself is different. Although I would say there's a lot of great storytelling now on nighttime TV, you know. Um, but there was a time when the prevailing thought was that daytime television really was a big money maker. For nighttime television, it pretty much supported the uh, the television industry. And then I don't know what happened. They started losing some of the audience. Women started going to work. People weren't at home, and um, they just kind of lost interest. But to me, it, you know, I I miss some of those characters that we had. And there was a lot of good storytelling. Um, I think on daytime television, there yes. was a lot of groundbreaking. You know, you know, AIDS storylines and LGBTQ storylines that were introduced on daytime. You know, there was a lot of groundbreaking, I think, on daytime television. And in fact, you know, there were uh, courses taught in college based on soap operas. Um, And it's too bad that uh, that they're they're gone. Yeah, they're selling like again back in the day. But uh, back in yeah, the I day, men kind of miss those days. Yeah. Well, I completely understand. It sure was a, a fun time for me growing up in the 80s. I just discovered so many, you know, shows and films and music and and books. And it was just, um, you know, I was an only child. So my imagination was huge. And I was raised by my grandparents. So, um, you know, it was just a fun time learning about so many wonderful things. Well, before we move on into some other areas, I would like to take this opportunity to ask you, did you have a favorite storyline in particular? Or is that just too tough of a question to ask? Because <laughs> I know you were probably involved with so many. Ah, uh, gosh. I, I was fortunate to have a very full... Um, up until that time, it was really in the eighties. If you saw, if you saw uh, black characters on in the soaps, a lot of times they were the the supporting characters. They were the ones that you know that the the white characters would tell their problems to and stuff like that. But I think the thing that was so groundbreaking about Dee Dee was that. She had a very full, rich storyline. First of all, she was involved in a love triangle, so that you know, so we that was you know to be got a chance to be front burner. And then she was a professional. She was a lawyer, so she I had to have got got to go to court and have cases and a, and a career. Then they brought in my brother and. Uh, and uh, I, I got to have a nervous breakdown, 
And I mean, there were oh, things that happened to her that allowed me to have a rich storyline in terms of the character. And as an actor, I got a chance to bring some richness and, um, and a full emotional life to that character. So I found it very satisfying. So I think there's not one particular storyline, but the fact that I got to have so many of them, and so not just one storyline, but a bunch of different tributaries that got me involved in a lot of different things, I think that is the thing that was most important to me, that I got a chance to live a rich, full life in, in, in that character. Sounds like a lot of amazing and interesting storylines. I'm just curious because when it comes to that show, Marianne, I'm not 100% certain. And based on everything you shared with me today, I'm just curious. Was interracial pairing something that had uh, occurred yet on that show? Or, or was that something that, as far as you know, did not happen? Well, it didn't happen, although Ernie Townsend, who played Cliff, Ernie Townsend and I used to we used to say to one, and it was used to come up to John and say, "Our uh, the director John said to say, um, sometimes during dress rehearsal, you know, Ernie and I would do little pranks." And I remember one time we were having it. No, it actually the cameras are rolling, and I think we embraced into this passionate kiss, you know, just to say, you know, it could happen, folks. It could happen. But um, <laughs> no, it was still the early, <laughs> and that wasn't happening back then. Um, I and see. I don't think that was necessarily the uh, the show's decision. I don't think society and culture that the show felt that they were ready for it at that time. I, you know, I think that's. I think that was it. I don't think it was. I don't think it was um, reflective. I think it was reflective of what was going on in the, in society at that time. And so I don't think they wanted to push the envelope. That wasn't a, that wasn't, like I said, it it took a while just to, just to get me on there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, it may have been asking too much to to do that. At that particular time. But like I said, yes, I'm, I've, I'm fortunate to be able to have lived to the age that I am now and I've had an opportunity to see the evolution and the changes that have happened, the positive changes, the two steps forward, then occasional, the occasional one step back, then moving forward and moving forward and moving forward to the point that what's happening in society now is very reflective. Uh, what's happening on television now is very reflective of what's happening in society. society. We are a far more diverse and open society. I mean, the fact that it was, you know, 20 years ago, would we have thought that gay marriage was a possibility? Would we have been so receptive of, you know, transgender characters being so readily accepted? We've become much more open and with some resistance, I would say, from some people, um, because maybe that's the way they were indoctrinated, you know, differently as they're growing up. But hopefully we're becoming more accepting and more loving and more compassionate. I mean, live and let live. That's how I feel. As long as nobody is hurting anybody else, you know, it's like if, if, 
if if you are now, I happen to be a you know a heterosexual or I guess cisgender female, um, but I have uh, you know how anybody else wants to live their life. Um, as a matter of fact, okay, I have a a song in my show which I'm going to plug my show, Getting Old as a Bitch, I'm going to wrestle that bitch to the ground, (laughs) my solo show. (laughs) And I uh, I play um, adult sex ed evangelist and mojo motivator, Dr. Ginger Peachy Keen. So a lot of it is about um, (laughs) love and romance and sex and self-acceptance. But there's a little song that I sing. I'm trying to remember it now. It is sometimes man <laughs> loves man and woman loves woman. Um, so it just comes naturally because that's the way that God has made them. So that's the way they're supposed to be. When it comes to love, we can't judge or hold a grudge. If a man takes a husband or a woman takes a wife, Mind your own damn business. It's their freaking life. <laughs> <laughs> bravo, bravo. <laughs> and it goes on, but I won't go on into the rest of it, rest of it. But that's basically is how I feel about it. And I think that if we are open to being more accepting of how other people want to live their lives, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with it. But just be accepting of it. Be open and allow people to be who they are. Because if you want to disallow someone else, then that opens the door for you to be disallowed. You know, we can't be segmented and fractured. We are one human society. We sure are. And thank you for sharing all of that. Well, your adventures on television would continue, of course, Marianne. And I have to ask you about you appearing on an episode of Hooperman with John Ritter. I love Three's Company. Uh, I just love John Ritter. So I had to ask you what that experience was like for you. Well, he was just, I didn't have um, scenes with him, but he was always around this, you know, he would, he was, he was a jovial, nice, great, fun person. Um, I've been very fortunate to work with some people who were really, really great. I got a chance to work with uh, Dixie Carter, who was an Edge of Night, you know, alumna. Yes. And uh, designing women. And she was just, just enchanting. She was just lovely. Um, I let's see, I worked with Red Fox, I worked with Della Reese, I worked with Naya Rivera from Glee, who was my daughter on the Royal Family. She was four years old. I used to carry her around on the set. Um, I worked with O.J. Simpson on um, First and Ten. For three seasons, I played his wife. Um, you sure did. That was an HBO. That was like, an that was like a, a, a continuing show, kind of like we're used to these days. Mm-hmm. For those folks that don't know, back then, mm-hmm. you know, HBO had a few shows that was ongoing, and yeah, you sure were on that. And yeah, that was one of their first big hits. It was a dramedy. Of yes, football. I remember that. Comedy it was dramedy. a big hit. <clears throat> and then I worked with Diana Ross on The Wiz. I got a chance to, you know work with her and she was absolutely oh, wow. delightful. So I've had an opportunity, you know, it's, it's wonderful when you get a chance to work with big stars. And I think the 
sometimes the big stars, the bigger they are, the nicer they are. The ones who have really paid their dues, they they are welcoming and embracing. If you are if if if, if you are disciplined, I always say to young actors, be disciplined, learn your lines, show up on time, be be ready on the set, be kind, be gracious, and you will be welcomed. And Every once in a while, you're going to run into some people who are, you know, are a little funky. But um, but when I run into people who are difficult to work with, I usually, energetically, I send them a blessing. Because I figure whatever that has caused them to, to uh, present in a negative way means that there's something that's that's disturbing that's inside them. So I try to, to send them a blessing and, you know, put a girdle around myself so that I'm not sucked into their negativity. Well, that's a wonderful approach to take. I really commend you for that. That's not always easy to do. And the fact that you take that approach, I really admire that. I think that's a, a very positive approach. Well, I've had a lot of therapy, and I've also been I've, I've trained to be a therapist. So I think, oh. you know, it's 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 detachment. I try to practice detachment. I try to disengage from negativity and not allow it to you know come in and and affect me, because um, I think the negativity is only going to affect me, and I don't want to want it around me. You know, working with Della Reese, she was a, a minister. And she used to have classes, kind of Bible study classes in the dressing room. And she said, um, you know, the law of attraction, you know, the secret is being kind of big, um, you know, from about 15 or 20 years ago in the law of attraction. She said, somebody could be the meanest, and she did curse, the meanest mofo in the world. But if you don't (laughs) carry that inside of you, they will take that crap somewhere else. So... I try, you know, so I detach, disengage. And it's like, if you want to be funky, that's fine. But you take that funk someplace else. Somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm going to be concentrating on my work and having a good time. And and if you need to go be grumpy, then, you know, good luck to that. There you go. That's a good, uh, that's a good approach. It's an approach I try to take most definitely. Uh, I too, I I work well with people who are artistically minded or more positive in general. I mean, we all have our rough days, but uh, I really like your approach. You know, uh, I was thinking of something ironic to me when I was learning more about your career, Marianne. So you mentioned working with OJ on First and Ten, but I found it rather surreal that just years later, you would be on a production about OJ Simpson. Uh, And I believe that was a television movie. Is that correct? Right. It was White Ford Bronco, and I played OJ's mother. Um, Yes. uh, And... It was the the same production company that produced, um, I think it was Kushner Lock, the same production company that produced First and Ten, I think was producing this, and I believe it was the same casting director. And and they called me in, and I was the mother of 
the young teenage OJ, and then they aged me later, and I played them. And Bobby Hosea played OJ. And it's funny because I had worked with Bobby Hosea before, where we had played husband and wife on a commercial. And oh, okay. And um, so a lot of folks from before <laughs> on we, that project. You know, you hang around long enough, you work with everybody. <laughs> um, and I remember when we would sit on the set, OJ would say, would tell me some things about his mother, who was a tough cookie. And so I tried to incorporate some of her toughness into the scenes that I had with young OJ. And I think it, I think it worked pretty well. Um, I see. You know, he, he, he had a interesting life growing up. Um, and working with him, I think there were, there were two OJs. I think there was the one who was, um, doing a little psychoanalysis here. I think it was the person that he presented himself to be. And then I think there was a, there was, uh, another side to him that um that uh was probably well let me put it this way Carl Young says anyone who does not acknowledge their dark side is destined to be ruled by it and i think that if we don't acknowledge that part of us then something goes wrong. And I think he had a lot of, a lot invested in being the good OJ. And so I think at some point the dark side kind of took over. That's just my own personal interpretation of what happened. But anyway. Well, Marianne, I, you know, you worked with, um, wow, an actor that has influenced so many other actors and comedians and Red Fox, uh, being on, his last television show, when you look back, is there anything uh, that stands out in your mind today? What you see is what you got. Red was red. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he was just who he was. I mean, and he was, I remember the first when we did that. Okay. I'm going to tell you a funny Red Fox story. Okay. Well, he was, uh, the first time I met Go him, for I had already been cast in the show. <laughs> Uh, and, but I, we, the cast had not met. We, the pilot was picked up. The first time we met was over at the CBS studios and it was for a photo shoot. So it was a photo shoot of the family. So I show up and we bring a certain amount of wardrobe and they picked out this address of mine. That was a little Laura Ashley, sort of a flowy, this was back in the nineties. You know what it's called? Kind of long, bohemian, flowy, loose fitting dresses. Uh-huh. And so we, we we were all lined up yes. in the photo shoot. And Red looks over me and he says, he says, can't we get something else for her to wear? And I said, well, Red, this is my dress. <laughs> and he said, well, damn, let's pick up a collection and buy this child some clothes. <laughs> and, so, and I said, well, what is, he said, look, baby, he said, this is show business. You got to show them something. Let Pim not dress up in the back. She got a nice figure. We can't see it. So they did. They got some pins and they pinned it up. <laughs> and then he said, now that's better. And then he looked at me and he said, hey, can't we get her some socks or something? Because he said, the daughter has a bigger chest than the mama. That doesn't make any sense. And literally they got some socks and they stuffed my bra. 
And he said, now that's better. He can say, because remember, baby, this is show business. You got to oh show something. Goodness. And so it kind of became a running gag that I had, you know, um, <laughs> uh, padded bras that I would wear for the, you know, for the show. Um, and he, every episode. and For every I episode. We come out and, you know, during oh, the, my. Uh, well, actually <laughs> made the clothes look better. But, um, but you know, he used to tease me. He used to say, you know, okay. it's only, you know, we talk about me getting a boob job. He said, you know, it's only $1,500. I can buy you some. <laughs> Thanks, Red. I'll stick with the padded bras. And so um, to, to pay a joke on him, I had the scenic department do a mock like 44 quadruple D fake chest. And the wardrobe department got a big, you know, size 16 blouse so I could yes. put it on. And uh, and I and, and they painted it the right color and everything. <laughs> and so Della had to make an entrance behind Grandpa's couch. And he was going to, uh, she was going to say, Greg, come help me with, you know, uh, <laughs> Al, come help me with these. Because his name was Al on the show. Al, come help me with these groceries. And he got up from his chair and then Adela was supposed to walk through the door. And so... She said, Allison, help me with these groceries. And instead, he got up and turned around and said, I walked through the door, and I had this, these big boobs, and then I pulled away the shirt, and it's like I flashed him with these big, fake boobs. <laughs> and he and he's, he was like, you know when he, when he was playing Sanford, he would clutch his chest, and it's like, oh, I'm coming, Elizabeth. That's what he did. He kind of clutched his chest, yeah. and he was staggering. Yes. And the crew just fell out, and Della said, she got you good. Didn't she? Didn't she, Red? You won't mess with her now anymore. Still, <laughs> you. And that took care of that. Well, but the thing that about took care it of that. Is that <laughs> he had a heart attack the next week, and I thought, "Oh Lord Jesus, I killed the man." He's just the shock oh, was no. too much for him. I'm kidding, of course. But I told that yes, story at the memorial service that we had at the at the uh, at the uh, at Paramount. <clears throat> after his death, and I said, you know, in his honor, if I ever should get a boob job, I will call them the Red Fox Memorial Titties. <laughs> so. Hey, that's a that's a wonderful tribute. I'm sure he would approve. <laughs> I never, I never did it, but, um, and, uh, but, you know, I probably have a, uh, a couple of push-up bras, you know, that will in, in his honor that I will, you know, wear from time to time. But anyway, that's what uh, a so that's story. Story, but he was he was funny in the that we shot the pilot. He sent his assistant around with a little card, a little break a leg card, and there was a hundred dollar bill in it for everybody for all the cast. Well, what a story, or should I say stories? That's just absolutely amazing. Thank you, Marianne. And before I give you an opportunity to let the listeners know, you know, how to find, um, you know, more information about you directly and some of your stand-up material you mentioned, um, I know there's a website out there. I, I did want to get your thoughts on this. You know, it had been a while since Sanford and Son. I just imagine that, that he had to be so... Um, joyful that uh, of having this opportunity of being you know on a primetime television show that you know once again well eddie murphy was the executive producer of that show and red and della had done a movie with eddie called harlem nights yes. and eddie was so taken with their chemistry 
that he decided that he wanted to produce a show. He saw them as a, as wow. a sitcom. And he was a, he had a deal at Paramount, and so he was the executive producer of that show, and so he's the one who put it together. He got inspired by that. That That is amazing. I love yeah. stories like that. Unexpected yeah. moments. Yep. Well, thank you, Marianne. Uh, I, well, I can't wait to share that story with some people, just so you know. I, <laughs> I mean, that that's just one of the... I never heard that story. That's just, that's just wonderful. Well, uh, go ahead. How can folks uh, learn more about you and all of that good stuff? Uh, well, just, you know, you can Google me. You can uh, visit my website which at marianalda.com I, I also has another URL, you know, uh, uh, sexywise.com Um, and you can see clips from my solo show, from my standup, from, uh, my Ted talk is on there. Um, I'm also an AARP, uh, age disruptor. So there's a, they've got a camera crew and they, you know, take me, um, at one of my standup clubs talking about ageism. Um, so I am an, uh, an anti-ageism advocate. I am believe in um, aspirational aging because aging, getting older is something that we should aspire to. And if you discriminate against older people, then you're actually discriminating against your future self. I like that. that yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a moment to just let that sink in. And I'm like, I like that because yeah. you're right. You're right. No other yeah. way around it. You are right yeah. about that. Yeah. No matter, you know, no matter your ethnicity, your gender, your race, creed, or color, age is the common denominator for all of us. Well, Mary Ann, this has been an absolute delight and pleasure I've learned so much, and I can't even tell you how much fun I had speaking with you today. Well, I just, uh, I, I just kind of, you, you got me on my soapbox. <laughs> you got me on my <laughs> I'm glad. Soapbox. And um, it was delightful talking with you. And if there's anybody gets anything, if there's any takeaway for anybody that they find something positive or inspirational, then my work is done here. I want to wish you a happy birthday in advance. Thank I feel you. like it's my birthday too by speaking with you. So thank you for that gift. Well, you're welcome. And when is your birthday, Steve? It is August 22nd. Uh, Leo so ways or to go. Virgo? <laughs> <laughs> I am, uh, you know, I'm right on the borderline. Like you're I'm talking good. right down the middle and I am a Leo. Okay. Okay. Well, happy birthday in advance. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Hollywood and Beyond podcast created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.